For the longest time, he dreamt about her. A baby. A baby girl he's holding in his arms. A baby he's bouncing up and down. He can see all that, but he can't see her face. What does she look like? Where's her face? Morning after morning, he'd wake up from sleep without any clearer picture of what the baby looked like. Were his dreams provoking him? Poking at him? Pestering him with a cruel joke that plays out in his head over and over each night while he sleeps? In real life, he's locked behind bars. First, there was a drug arrest and conviction. And then there was another arrest and conviction, this time for lewd and lascivious behavior, behind bars again. Craig Aiken was 22 when he impregnated 15-year-old Shannara Mobley. She'd been staying across the street from his mother's house when they hooked up. That's against the law. He was in jail late July 9, 1998, when Shannara went to University Medical Center to give birth to his daughter. He was in jail the following day when a woman in scrubs, a woman posing as a nurse, walked into Shannara's room hours after she gave birth and then walked out of the room and the hospital with their baby tucked inside her purse. And now Craig can't help in the search for his newborn baby, a baby whose face he never got a chance to see in real life or in his dreams. Is that why he dreams about the faceless baby? Because it's real? Because it's his life? At the time of the abduction, no photos of his daughter's delicate face had been taken. There were only footprints, but not the kind of footprints that lead you anywhere. Just black ink the size and shape of a baby's foot on stark white paper. That's it. That and the relentless dreams. Perhaps the dreams are punishment for not being there when she was born, for not stopping it. With no face and no photos, the only thing Craig has to remember his daughter by is her name. And that name is Kamaya. From the Florida Times Union, this is Have You Seen Kamaya? I'm Eileen Kelly, an investigative reporter for the Times Union and Jacksonville.com. I've been telling you the story of Kamaya Mobley, the newborn baby kidnapped from a Jacksonville hospital on July 10, 1998. If you're joining us for the first time, I recommend you go back and listen to our previous episodes in order. We'll see you soon. Episode 3, Alexis. When Gloria Brown opened the front door of her home on a July day in 1998, she was confused. Standing in front of her was her daughter, her daughter and a newborn baby. Glow, that's what they called her, did not understand. After all, there had been no phone call from her daughter with word that she was in labor and heading to the hospital. There had been no phone call announcing the joyful news of the birth of a baby girl. There had been no phone calls for more than a day during this second week in July in 1998. It was rare for Glow and her daughter, who's also named Gloria, not to speak on the phone each day. But that's just what happened. No checking in, just silence. And now, there she was, Gloria, 
cradling a newborn at her mother's front door in Ruffin, South Carolina. Glow had questions. When was your baby born and where? Why didn't you call when you went into labor? The baby was born in a Charleston hospital, Gloria told her mother. She got a ride there, she continued. Isn't she beautiful? Gloria asked. Indeed, she was. And they called her Alexis. Alexis Kelly Manigo. She brought the baby in, put it in my lap, and I looked at the baby, and uh, she just was a beautiful baby, and Gloria seemed so happy. Gloria was happy. She was thoughtful. She was kind. She was always smiling, everyone said. She pushed herself to smile when others would feel overwhelmed. That's just how she was. Push on, smiling. After her marriage to a military officer failed, Gloria came back to this low country community of less than 3,000 with her two boys, Andre and Antoine. Ruffin felt like home. It had been her home away from home throughout her childhood when she would come here from New York City and stay with her grandparents for the summer. From the Big Apple to Ruffin, a place where there are approximately 27 people per square mile, it's so not New York City. Ruffin is so small and devoid of, well, pretty much everything, that its Wikipedia page entry has all of three sentences dedicated to it. And one of those sentences explains that there's a post office there. Ruffin was hot for this transplant, but oh, it had expansive areas of grass for children. And the bugs, they were just so big. But Gloria loved it. She moved across the street from her parents, Glow and Wilbert Brown. This was home now. And just as her parents provided so much help with the boys while she managed a job at a nursing home and at a reservation center for the Holiday Inn, they'd be there too for sweet baby Alexis. Her boyfriend, who wanted this baby so much, would be a big help, too. He's the one who came up with the name Alexis. Alexis Kelly Manigo. During that second week of July, 1998, Alexis came home to a freshly painted room. In it was a stark white crib, a gift from her grandparents. Gloria was 32. Yes, she'd manage all right. She can do it. After all, she mostly raised the two boys on her own. That's because when she was married, her husband's career kept him away a lot. She was going to do it, and she was going to do it right. Gloria was all smiles. She was prepared. She kept two baby bags, one for her everyday use that she'd cart around everywhere, and the other in a closet by the door, just in case there was an unplanned trip. She wanted to ensure Alexis would be comfortable. Alexis was a, was a doll baby. She was a joy. Gloria called Alexis Lexi for short. Lexi's big brother, Antoine, called her Skittles after her favorite colorful candy. Skittles was her nickname for a while because uh, she used to always eat Skittles. That was a deal breaker. She wouldn't tell on you if you gave her some Skittles. Or sometimes he'd call her Mrs. Me Too because it seemed she always wanted what others had. Me Too, she would say. Me Too. I mean, everybody was happy. Uh, we had came back from Virginia and uh, came back. Alexis was there. Um, my grandparents was happy. Uh, the family 
that was around was happy. Uh, aunts, uncles, and stuff came in town to uh, you know welcome the new the new family member in, and uh, I just remember good times. Everybody was happy at that point. With Alexis now there, Antoine was no longer the youngest child. Alexis's other brother Andre he doted over his baby sister. He was about 10 when Alexis came home. He did his best to be there for his mother and the baby sister. Oh, yeah, all the time. Uh, you know, just just trying to be the one that calms her down all the time. I used to pick her up and hold her all day. I hate to put her down. I hate to hear her crying. Uh, I know nights that, uh, you know, I get yeah, typical baby stuff. When they wake up in the middle of the night on a bottle, I'd already have it ready. It's like clockwork. I know she's about to wake up. I feed my mom to the room, get her, put her in my room, feed her a bottle. Almost every night. Everything seemed to be falling in place, Gloria thought. As a toddler, Alexis had chubby cheeks and a mop of luscious soft curls that rounded her head just right. When Alexis was five, Gloria sent off for a child identification kit, Identikid. Alexis's fingerprints were put on the back of the card with instructions on what to do in the event the unthinkable happened, in the event she was missing or worse yet, she was kidnapped. Motherhood came naturally to Gloria. They were both happy people. Alexis grew to look like Gloria. Both had pleasant faces. Both had broad smiles. Both were short in stature. Alexis had dance recitals, and she tried her hand at cheerleading. She and her mother were active in the small Methodist church in Ruffin. Alexis was taught to be respectful and to treat people in a kind manner. She participated in the Mary B. Thomas Youth Girls Program, which trains girls for a better tomorrow. It focuses on higher education and civic-mindedness. She had rules to live by. She wasn't, you know, she was the princess, but she still had rules. That's Gloria. Alexis did well in school, and she made the honor roll. She was invited to participate in a pre-med program at Wake Forest University when she was about 10. She wanted to be a pediatrician. I was like, wow, I just don't remember at that age wanting to, you know, already have my life planned out. So I was happy that she was able to participate with that. You know, it, I encouraged her to do it because I think ever since she was four years old, she'd been wanting to be a doctor. Gloria was so proud of Alexis. Their relationship was strong and enviable. Well, you saw her, you see me, and... At school, everybody, that's Lexi, Mom. I, I just, I wasn't Miss Bolden anymore. I was Lexi, Mom. So that's what they remember, because it was always her. They remembered her first. When Gloria married Warneski Williams, a truck driver, about six years ago, Alexis was the flower girl. The two of them moved to nearby Hampton, where Warneski was living. Alexis, though, got to stay in her same school because of her mother's job. The family would later move to Walterboro, where they settled into a quaint white Habitat for Humanity house with a large yard some 11 miles southeast of Ruffin. So almost like home, just bigger. 
Walterboro was originally settled in the 1700s as a summer retreat for those attempting to escape the malaria-ridden Low Country plantations. When Interstate 95 was built, Walterboro became a top overnight stop for those traveling to New York and Florida. There's about 5,000 people in Walterboro. It's just 48 miles west of Charleston. All in all, Ruffin and Walterboro are storybook little southern towns where life is simple. I think she was uh, blessed. I mean, the child that she had uh, was uh, outstanding, wonderful. Uh, when she walked in the room, like like preacher said, she's like a firecracker. You instantly get snatched onto that smile, and you want to be a part of what she got going on because she she got a, a a gift. She attracts people to her. For what reason I don't know, but she attracts people to her, including myself. So that's a good trait to have, and uh, she's a wonderful person to be around. That's Brother Antoine again. Alexis was about 14 when Pastor Sherry White came to the Buckhead United Methodist Church in Ruffin, a tiny congregation of about 65 people. All but a handful were born and raised going to the church. Pastor White glommed on to Gloria and her daughter. With her organizational and people skills, Gloria was an asset to promote the church and its missions in the Methodist community. And little Alexis, you couldn't help but love her. She lit up the little chapel when she'd walk in. She became a junior usher. Firecracker. Um, she lights up a room. Her smile is contagious. Um, respectful. A joy to be around. And no matter what, she's going to try to make you laugh. They call this a family church, where everyone knows everyone, the pastor told me. Everyone helps everyone. Alexis was everybody's baby. Um, everybody had a hand in making sure that Alexis got whatever Alexis wanted. Um, she was, and still is, the love of Buckhead. But did everyone really know everyone, like the pastor said? Every second of every day was a lie. life was out of control. It was based on lies going back to the late 1990s. My family didn't know what was going on. I didn't let them in. I kind of kept my distance from them and uh, because they were used to me always being that smiley person and you know always trying to put my best foot forward. I just not wanted to know this nightmare I was living. You know I, I left one marriage and I don't know I guess my heart was still trying to heal from that. It just felt like I was in mourning. In 1997, she entered into a new relationship. At first, it was like most new relationships. It was good. But it wasn't better by any stretch. It choked me one couple of times until I passed out. Um, the bruises, I tried to hide the bruises. And she couldn't hide it from her two boys, one of whom described Gloria and her boyfriend like oil and water. I call observing um, my mother being called out of her name, uh, her being hit for various reasons um, that I didn't understand at the time. Um, but uh, to me, it didn't require you to be punched in the face, slapped around, dragged across, or chased. Um, 
or chase a van, you know, things of that nature. But uh, he was out of control then. Uh, as a man, mentally, he was out of control. So withdraw my mom up a creek. That's her now-grown son, Antoine. He was too young at the time to intervene, but his father wasn't. Gloria was hauled into court. Their custody arrangement needed to change, their father argued. Gloria lost. Antoine and Andre went to Virginia. Ruffin was a small town. People talked. Her parents were across the street. Still, she did her best to mask the pain, to hide the bruises, to only go to the hospital when absolutely necessary. He took me to a place that was dark, and my soul, my spirit was broke, my heart was broke, and I don't wish that on anybody. I lost my kids behind this. I lost a lot. I lost a lot. The man vowed to stop abusing her, beating her, berating her, if she gave him a baby. So she got pregnant. Uh, it, was, it started off to be a good pregnancy. It did, and um, I was, for the most part, healthy doing, you know, doing the early parts of it. But after the abuse and stuff, I think the stress from all of that just just didn't let the pregnancy go on. She miscarried, but she didn't tell anyone. My life was out of control. I, I lost everything. Then one steamy night in July 1998, she left work and headed home. But she never made it there. Hours later, in the middle of the night, she walked into University Medical Center in Jacksonville, some 200 miles away down Interstate 95. I had no plans, nothing. I, I don't know. I was, just feel like I was on autopilot. Just, I was depressed. I was extremely just depressed. To see her, you wouldn't know it. She was a pleasant-looking woman with a broad smile and reading glasses and shoulder-length hair that curled under just right. She wore medical scrubs, green bottoms and a blue floral top. To those that saw her, and many did that day in the hospital, she appeared to be in her mid to late 20s. She didn't sneak around the hospital. She didn't try and hide. In fact, she was in plain view that night, talking to people, lots of people. She asked questions, and they answered. At first, the questions were general. She observed what was happening in the nursery. She wandered the halls. A few hours later, her questions were more focused. Had Shannara Mobley given birth yet? Fighting with myself, I guess. And that's how I felt, fighting with myself. I did go to the floor and looked at the babies at the ward. And um, just looked at them and just thought about the baby I lost. There she was, her Alexis. She stood there for two straight hours, staring, waiting for her next move. So she asked another question. When would the little Mobley girl be moved to her mother's room? 
Gloria made her way to room 328. Shannara, who had been dropped off at the hospital and left to have the baby on her own, welcomed the help of the woman in scrubs. Gloria and the new teenage mom talked, and talked, and talked. Actually, they talked for at least five hours. During that time, Gloria held Shannara's sweet baby girl, looking at her with a big smile. Gloria put her in the bassinet when Shannara asked her to. She'd hand her over to her mother when it was time. There was nothing threatening about the woman in scrubs that day. Not only was Gloria not threatening, she was friendly. She was helpful. She even helped Shannara get cleaned up and into a new gown. By 3 p.m., the day had been a long one for Gloria. A full day's work, the 200-mile drive, the wandering, the waiting, the plotting. It was time. So she picked up the baby, the one she'd been staring at for hours without drawing attention, and began to leave Shannara's room as the new mother settled into sleep. A nurse spotted her and told her people aren't allowed to carry newborns in their arms. She'd need the bassinet. So Gloria walked back in the room and started to pick up the pacifier, but put it down when Shannara stirred in bed. A woman, the baby's grandmother, was walking in. She had to get out. I'm going to take the baby and get her tested for a fever, she said, as she brushed past Velma Aiken. So she walked out of the room again. She walked down the hall and right out of the hospital with a baby in her purse. Even though their life was built on a lie, a great big giant lie, Gloria and Alexis would have a lovely life in South Carolina. She believed, though, it would all be fleeting. So Gloria kept two diaper bags, one for her everyday use that she'd cart around everywhere she went with little Lexi, and the other she kept in a closet by the front door. It sat there as a reminder so she wouldn't forget to give it to the police when they came knocking on her door. She wanted the police to have everything they'd need to comfortably transport baby Alexis, well, Kamaya, back to Jacksonville. Diapers, wipes, pacifiers, and formula. It was all there, waiting by the door for the police. But the knocks never came. And each day that the police did not come for the baby, the more comfortable Gloria became. The lie, that big, big lie, was working. She was pulling it off. She kidnapped a newborn. She fooled her abusive boyfriend, who was in jail at the time of her fake childbirth, into believing Alexis Kelly Manigo was his daughter. She fooled her parents, her sons. She fooled her community, her church, her world, even her Alexis. And while she was lying so masterfully each day, the story of the Kamaya Mobley kidnapping made headlines around the country. The story was on CNN and America's Most Wanted. Was Gloria smarter, tougher, better than all the muscle of the Jacksonville police and the FBI and the $250,000 reward anteed up by the hospital for her capture? She wasn't sure. 
so she kept mementos around the house to bolster the lie. She altered a pink hospital tag, the cards placed on the outside of baby bassinets in maternity ward nurseries to say Manigo Baby. She altered a birth certificate and put her name on it as the child's mother. She used the social security number of a dead man on Alexis's school records, all just in case. It was working. It was working. It was working. But one day, that would change. I'm investigative reporter Eileen Kelly, and you've been listening to a podcast produced by the Florida Times Union. Visit jacksonville.com forward slash Kamaya for more information about the case of the missing baby. That's jacksonville.com forward slash Kamaya, K-A-M-I-Y-A-H. There you'll find photos, videos, and original case documents. You'll also find the next episodes of this podcast as they become available. Or you can find episodes on Apple Podcast or anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Research for this story came in part from official records from the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, the State Attorney's Office of the Fourth Judicial Circuit of Florida, court records, Times Union Archives, First Coast News, and WJXT News for Jacks. This podcast is edited by Times Union editor Mary Kelly Polka. It is produced by digital director Gary Mills. Have You Seen Kamaya is made possible with support from advertisers and subscribers to the Florida Times Union and Jacksonville.com. Learn more about how you can support our journalism at jacksonville.com forward slash subscribe now. Thank you for joining us.